It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. True Crime Brewery contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Medical information is opinion based on facts of a crime and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to True Crime Brewery. I'm Jill. And I'm Dick. Graduate student Annie Lay disappeared from her lab at Yale University just five days before her wedding. When she was first reported missing, investigators theorized that she had cold feet and she'd likely run off for some time alone, think things over. But Annie's family and friends didn't believe that Annie would do that. She was very much in love with her fiancé, and she was really excited about the upcoming nuptials. Join us at the quiet end for The Vanishing Bride-to-Be, the story of Annie Lay. As the days passed by and her wedding day neared, Annie's disappearance seemed more and more likely to be the result of foul play but a thorough examination of CCTV footage at the laboratory showed that Annie had never even left the building. So this is really a fascinating case. It certainly is. We've seen enough documentaries on it. It just really is an interesting case. So for the beer review today, I have a world-class IPA. The brewery is New England Brewing Company, and the beer is Fuzzy Baby Ducks, which I like the name of that beer, huh? I love fuzzy baby ducks. They're adorable. So this beer is a ruddy orange color with this big, huge off-white head and just sheets of lace. Very pretty looking beer. Nice aroma, citrus fruit, tropical fruit, some sweet malt. We get a taste of toasty malt, orange, grapefruit rind, lemon, and some mango. A lot of flavors in there. This is a very drinkable beer. And as I said, it's world class. Really is an excellent IPA. All right. Now, the no-beers, the people who just want to get through that beer review to get to the crime, are going to be really pissed off at me. But I do have one question about the beer. Now, the lace. How do you make lace? Is there something you can do to make your beer more lacy? Well, it depends on the hop combination you have, and it depends on how big a head you get from the beer. 
the bigger the head, the more the lace generally? Or? Generally, yeah. Okay. I was just curious because I've been hearing about it for years. So let's open it up and then we can really get a look at that lace. Okay. You'll see how pretty it is. All right, down here at the quiet end. Dickie, you're fully vaccinated. I am. So things are looking good for the quiet end down here. Yeah, I'm thinking when, when you get your second shot and we'll be ready to open things up a little bit, huh? Absolutely, yeah. So that'll be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, but in the meantime, let's talk about this story. So you can get us started. All right. So Annie Lay grew up in Placerville, California. This is a little city located in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. She had been born in San Jose in 1985 to Vietnamese parents Huang and Vivian Van Lay. Now, her parents divorced when she was young, and she was raised by an aunt and uncle. So neither parent was in the picture. Well, I think they were in the picture, but they didn't raise her. A lot of family stuff going on. As a first-generation American, Annie, and also her little brother Chris, Grew up in a simple ranch-style house located in the woods off a twisty one-lane gravel road. So if you're getting the impression that it's kind of out there, it is. That's the right impression, yes. She was a student at Union Mine High School, which is about 45 miles east of Sacramento. And when she studied there, she was an exceptional student and a member of the National Honor Society. In her graduating class of 362 kids, she was the valedictorian. She owned a 4.28 grade point average. Impressive. Very. She was smart. She was likable. Her classmates voted her best of the best, as well as the female student most likely to be the next Einstein. During her senior year of high school, while working as a volunteer at Marshall Medical Center in El Dorado County, Annie was named Volunteer of the Year. So this is a, a hard-charging kid. Well, this is the kind of stuff you need to get into Ivy League schools, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In her valedictory speech, Annie shared what her plans were for the future. She said she loved cell biology and figuring out life on a microscopic level. And her goal was to become a laboratory pathologist. Teachers at Annie's high school would remember that Annie really stood out as being confident and intelligent. She'd known exactly what she wanted to do with her life at a really early age. Her fellow students didn't see her as snobby, though. She was just one of the people, very friendly. Of course, she didn't come from money, so when it was time to apply for college, she applied to dozens of colleges looking for a full scholarship, because it's really what she needed. Oh, yeah. No question about that. So Princeton University, across the country in New Jersey, was her first choice. It really had everything she wanted, and Princeton was known among research universities for its commitment to undergraduate teaching and research. So in the spring of 2003, Annie applied to Princeton, and then she waited nervously for hopefully an acceptance letter. But Princeton turned her down, so that's how competitive things are. It's crazy. Because you can't think of many students doing better than she did. Well, there are a bunch of them. I know, I know. So, of course, she was disappointed, you know, on the border of being kind of heartbroken. But she did receive several acceptance letters. 
and after considering all of the pros and cons of the ones that had accepted her, she decided to go to the University of Rochester, which offered her $160,000 in scholarship money. So that was one of the most generous offers. That's very generous. Yes. So in September 2003, Annie moved the 3,000 miles east to New York State, and she began her classes at the University of Rochester. Now, it was considered one of the best research universities in the country. Rochester had an exceptionally low student-to-teacher ratio, and according to one former student, the curriculum was great because there was freedom to select the courses you wanted to take, rather than just completing the core requirements. And despite the cold winters, and they are bone-chillingly cold. Heavy on the snow, too. Heavy on the snow, the famous lake effect snows. The city of Rochester is named one of the top ten most livable cities in America in 2007. That's the year that Annie graduated. So while she was a student there, Annie's research focused on the genetics of speciation. And this is for me and other people that might not know what that meant. It's the evolution of one or more species from an existing species. So, she's no dummy. I guess not. She is. <laughs> but she was really interested in what she was doing, and that's so important. She didn't go into it for money or prestige. She went into what really interested her. Oh, yeah. The National Institutes of Health recognized her research, too, when she investigated the molecular basis of osteoarthritis, and she was awarded a fellowship to work at the Institute. And she did that over the summers of 2005 and 2006. And while there, Annie learned a lot, which she could later apply to her research at Yale. According to a biography on the NIH website, Annie completed a project on bone tissue engineering. And the purpose of the project was to further understand the process of bone formation in order to manipulate it and regenerate bone tissue in patients that were suffering from degenerative bone diseases. So... She's very motivated. She certainly is, tackling all the tough problems here. I mean, a fellowship at NIH is a big deal. That is a big deal. When she did graduate the University of Rochester, she graduated with honors. She also earned an award from the biology department for academic achievements, as well as a college leadership award. So she took her academic life seriously. Yes, for sure. But... Annie also had a busy personal life while she was an undergrad. The most significant part of that was that she met Jonathan Wadowski there. He was a fellow student from Huntington, New York. Now, they started out as friends, but over time, the relationship turned into a romance. I think those are the best relationships, the ones that start out as friends. Well, yeah. You need that basis. Got to start with something that's a foundation, right? Right, exactly, because the lust will wear off. I mean, it <laughs> hasn't with us yet, but I hear that it happens. <laughs> <laughs> the lust. <laughs> I'm undressing you with my eyes as we speak. I know. <laughs> so even though it wasn't an easy decision, when they did graduate from college, Annie and Jonathan agreed to go to different schools to get their doctorates. So Annie went to Yale in New Haven, Connecticut, Jonathan went to Columbia in New York. So they go to a fairly prestigious school for undergrad, and they get into Ivy League schools for graduate work. They were good students. Yeah, these are real up-and-comers. Yeah. So the couple respected each other's work, and they had decided not to sacrifice any of their goals for the relationship to continue. So they agreed to make things work long distance, 
staying in touch each day and visiting as often as possible. And it's not too difficult. I mean, it's like 85, 90 miles between Columbia and Yale. So it's not insurmountable. No, well, we were talking about this earlier, and I was thinking, they're very busy. They're not going to make that drive very often. I'm thinking maybe twice a month. Yeah, it's probably not that often, but it's not like you got to fly across country or anything like that. No, no, it was accessible. So she began her studies at Yale in September 2007. She was a doctoral student at the School of Medicine's Department of Pharmacology. As her first school term progressed, she began research of how certain types of fatty acids regulate an enzyme involved in preventing metabolic disorders and in treating cancer and other diseases. So it seems like she's branching out there. It does. And she was also involved in other research projects, so she kept busy. During her second year as a grad student, Annie chose her dissertation topic, and it was the effects of certain proteins on metabolic diseases. So, they performed experiments on mice, and she spent a lot of her time in the basement lab of 10 Amistad. That's where the mice were kept. That's the mouse lab. Yep. And she received a grant from the National Science Foundation to do this research. So she's just moving along, doing really well. Yep. At the end of her second year in the PhD program, she got engaged to Jonathan, and the two began planning the wedding. So they decided that Sunday, September 13th, 2009, would be their wedding day. They planned an 11 o'clock in the morning ceremony at a gazebo overlooking a pond at the North Ritz Club in Syosset, New York, just close to where Jonathan had grown up. Then following the services, the guests, 150, 160 guests, would have an open bar and a lunch. Then on a September 6th post on her wedding blog, Annie wrote, less than one week till the big day. So she was really excited and probably a little overwhelmed with all of her research and studies and planning for this wedding and having the long-distance relationship. It's a lot. Well, it is, but I think she seems like the type of person that could manage that. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was very independent. She had to be really growing up, and she was used to being self-motivated and getting things done. To preside over the wedding ceremony, the couple chose cantor Sandra Sherry of Temple Bethel in Huntington, Long Island, who had known Jonathan since he was an infant. And Sherry always spoke to the prospective brides and grooms before their wedding, and she'd ask them why they want to be married. Annie told her that Jonathan brought out the best in her, and she was very much in love with him. And it was obvious that Jonathan was happiest when he was around Annie. So this was one of the better couples that she was going to do a wedding ceremony for. She really felt good about these two. They were solid. They seemed to be. They really did. And they really seemed like very mature for their ages. Tuesday, September 8th. Her wedding's just five days away, and Annie's juggling a lot of stuff. Sure. She's continuing studies. She's a devoted researcher, focused on her animal research in the mouse lab, and she is excited for her future career and her future life with her betrothed. Yeah, so we do a lot of missing person cases, and this one just seems a little more emotional for me just because what she had coming right up because it seems like she was just snatched away in the middle of getting a really good life going. Yeah, so this day, September 8th, 2009, this is the day that Annie went missing. She was up early that morning, 
to get ready to go to her lab and check on her mice. She had on a bright green short-sleeved t-shirt, a brown skirt, a reddish-brown beaded necklace, and brown shoes. She left her top-floor apartment in a Victorian building in the East Rock section of New Haven. This is an area often called Grad Haven because there's so many Ph.D. candidates living there. Must be a smart place, you know. I know. I would just feel like such an idiot. <laughs> I'd be sitting but there. you wouldn't. You're a doctor. With, Come on. With my mouth open. Oh, bullshit. So that morning, Annie took the Yale Transit bus, a blue and white shuttle bus, for the two-mile trip to her lab. The bus traveled between the campus, the New Haven train stations, and the East Rock neighborhoods. Well, once she was in her office, Annie planned to do some work before walking the three blocks to her basement research lab at 10 Amistad. After arriving at the office, she finished some homework, she checked her schedule, then she took her magnetic Yale ID card and walked over to Amistad. As usual, she left her purse, her wallet, and her cell phone inside her locked office because she didn't need it while she was doing her research. So security at the medical school campus, about a mile from Yale's main campus, was actually very tight. Only people with valid ID cards could enter these buildings. There were also more than 70 video surveillance cameras focused on the medical school complex, recording everyone in and around the buildings, and even those entering and exiting the buildings. So the reason for this increased security was actually the neighborhood, and this is a sad part of the story. As the medical campus expanded into this area, students were outside of the protective walls of the university, and they were really in an impoverished, high-crime part of the city. Also, since the 1980s, animal rights activists, yay, had been breaking into labs freeing animals, and they didn't want that to happen, of course. But we just have to look at the difference here between these students going for their PhD and doing this groundbreaking research, and then the people who actually were born and raised in that community who don't seem to have the same opportunities. So that, to me, is sad. Well, yeah, it is. Unfortunately, it's a fact of life. I know. It uh, is. But it also makes it more dangerous. You definitely need to be on the lookout for yourself. Yes, but it does seem like the school had been very cautious about it. They had taken a lot of measures. Well, they had. But, you know, you still have to walk from building to building, so you got to be careful there. But, yeah, for example, Annie had to swipe her electronic key card to enter the biomedical research building. And if you go through the building, I mean, most every lab had a key card that was needed. Right. So even inside, they were tracked pretty well. Yeah. So she's in, she's going down to the lower level to room G13. And as you said, the key card was needed to enter the basement rooms. So at 10.11 a.m., she swiped her key card and accessed room G13. And this was the room known as Bennett's Lab. Yeah. So once inside, she put on a disposable yellow lab coat walked over to the mouse cages, and began her examination of their status. After a few minutes, she took out her brown leather notebook, and she began writing down her observations. Annie frequently spent several hours each day at her lab, and recently, with her upcoming wedding, she spent even more time in the lab, trying to get things done. Her wedding was just five days away, and like Annie, a real perfectionist, obviously, she wanted her wedding to be perfect, too. So about two and a half hours after her arrival at the lab at 1240, a fire alarm went off at 10 Amistad. 
and everyone who was working inside the building filed out of the doors and waited outside for the all-clear signal. The rest of that day showed no outward signs of anything unusual at 10 Amistad. Researchers entered and exited their labs, and animal techs signed in on their task sheets. And these were the workers who cleaned the animal cages and the facility, and took care of the animals. And unfortunately, one of their duties was even to euthanize some animals. So this is not a place where I would ever work. You would never be able to work there? No. Now, Annie's roommates weren't worried when she didn't arrive home by 5 o'clock, because it wasn't unusual for her to work long hours. But by 7 o'clock, still no sign of Annie, and she hadn't called anyone, no one had heard from her, they got more and more concerned. Because even if she was busy doing stuff, she would call, let them know what was going on. And she was very safety conscious. In fact, she had even written an article back in February titled Crime and Safety in New Haven. And they ran the article in the School of Medicine's B Magazine, which is a student publication. The article began with the background of Yale stating that it was protected by a full-service police force that works in conjunction with the city of New Haven. Yeah, so this was something that was on her mind, because this is not something she was required to do. No, this is just something she got interested in. So the article also reported that the city of New Haven had seven times as much personal crime compared to other cities in the U.S., and she cited CNN's Money Magazine. For the article, Annie had interviewed the chief of the Yale Police Department, and the chief gave tips on how students could remain safe, and she included those in her article. So they were to pay attention to where you are, avoid portraying yourself as a potential victim, Don't be distracted by iPods or phone calls. Reduce your exposure by using an escort or the shuttle services. And walk with a purpose. You don't want to look like you're just lollygagging around. Also, keep a minimum amount of money on your person. Then she concluded her article with a warning. New Haven is a city and all cities have their perils. But with a little street smarts, one can avoid becoming yet another statistic. So, we know that Annie had thought a lot about safety in New Haven, and she also had taken her own advice, in addition to warning others. She never walked around at night by herself, and when she did work late, she always called someone to pick her up or walk with her. Smart moves. She was very smart about it, and it makes it all the more sad that this happened to her. So, by 10 o'clock that Tuesday night, still not being able to reach Annie, her roommates decided they needed to call the police. So they called the Yale Police Department. Now, it wasn't a routine thing for the Yale Police to get a missing person report, but it did happen from time to time. In the past, they had followed up on lots of missing persons reports, and in practically every case, the missing student turned up the next day after having just done something out of their ordinary routine. So they might get a a number of missing persons calls, but it usually doesn't end up with uh, permanently missing persons. They show up. Exactly. But this was very much out of character for her. And the people who knew her well were very concerned early on. Annie was very petite. She was an Asian woman, around four foot eleven, weighing 90 pounds, so just tiny. She'd left home that morning to do research in her lab and then planned to attend class. Also, remember she was getting married that coming Sunday. So the police immediately wondered if Annie had gotten cold feet. Maybe she was having second thoughts about her wedding. 
Officers contacted Annie's faculty advisor, and they went into Annie's office. After gaining access to her office, they were surprised when they found her purse there, with her cell phone, credit cards, and some cash. Remember, she usually didn't take her purse to the lab with her. She kept it in her office. But she's not going to leave the lab and go somewhere else without going to pick up her purse and her cell phone. Right. You would think she'd still be in the building. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So this is when the police started sharing the concern with Annie's friends that something was wrong. There was no sign of forced entry and nothing appeared to be missing, but it was odd. Distinctly odd. It was on the evening of September 8th when her roommate reported her disappearance. And then by Wednesday, the next day, the entire campus had heard about this. Then on Thursday, the Yale Daily News published an article with the headline, Graduate Student Goes Missing. That very same day, NewYorkDailyNews.com ran an article titled, Yale grad student Annie Lay disappears five days before New York wedding. So obviously it got more attention than it would if she was someone who cleaned the bathrooms at Yale. Sure. Which I don't think is right, but that's the way the world works. Like you keep reminding me. I do. So Friday, September 11th, the search for Annie really intensified. And by this time, the police had finally believed that she really hadn't run off due to pre-wedding jitters. So the New Haven Independent, which was an online local news site, announced that there was a $10,000 reward in the Annie Lay case. And that morning, TV networks reported on the circumstances of Annie's disappearance. They also sent camera crews and reporters to the Yale campus so they could interview the faculty and students. Then we got a criminal profiler who shared his opinion that it was interesting that the authorities were saying they didn't suspect foul play. He didn't believe any of the rumors that Annie was a runaway bride, explaining the brides-to-be who run off typically have an attention-getting personality, which was not Annie at all. So he felt that foul play had to be suspected, and there was just nothing else that made sense. Right, exactly. So police began to focus on the two places where Annie was known to have been on that Tuesday. Police and campus security officers went into Annie's office at the Sterling Hall Department of Pharmacology, and then they gathered up all of her belongings and took them for examination. Then they searched 10 Amistad and its attached parking garage. They dug through the trash bins outside of the building, which was a horrible job. That's where they put dead animals and animal waste, so yeah. pretty disgusting. Must be. And they collected video footage from the surveillance cameras throughout that area. Some of the police were assigned to comb through the video footage, so that was a big part of this investigation. They looked at every single image. And within a short time, they did see a clear image of Annie entering the building on Tuesday, September 8th, wearing the green t-shirt and carrying an unidentified object. But as they examined the pictures, they couldn't find an image of her leaving the building. Even during the fire alarm, which had happened at 12.40 p.m., there was no sign of her exiting or entering the building. So concern is building at this point. And it should be. Something's wrong, obviously. Something's wrong, that's for sure. But the weird thing is, how did she get out of the building? Did someone take her out? She was small enough they had to consider that maybe someone had taken her out, you know, even in a bag or a small suitcase. She's 90 pounds. True. Or she could still be in the building somewhere. Absolutely, but that's really weird. Well, that is. 
So after the authorities looked in both Annie's office and her laboratory, they hadn't found any clues. So the university figured it was time to call in the New Haven Police, the Connecticut State Police, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation to assist the Yale Police Department. So we've got a lot of authorities here now. Yes, this was a big search now. So the Yale Police Department distributed the surveillance photo, which showed Annie entering Ten Amistad on Tuesday morning, along with a leaflet stating that she had left her purse, credit cards, and cash at her office on Tuesday. Then it also described what she was wearing, that she didn't have a car. She apparently didn't have any medical or psychiatric issues that would explain her sudden disappearance. The police even sent an email to the Yale community urging anyone with information about Annie's whereabouts to contact them. Because Annie hadn't been seen or heard from for over 48 hours now, everyone was realizing that the situation was serious. Many of Annie's friends, colleagues, and professors joined in this search, as well as her fiancé. Jonathan came to New Haven from New York after telling his roommate at Columbia that Annie had vanished. And the police, of course, wanted to talk to him, and they were able to rule him out quickly as a suspect. He had an alibi of where he was on the 8th, and he also passed a polygraph exam. He was actually quite devastated, and these two people were really in love with each other. Yeah, but he's the uh, significant other, so you got to rule him out, right? Yes, they did that right away. As time passed, investigators became more convinced that they were dealing with something a lot more sinister than a simple missing person case. So they turned their focus to the Amistad lab where Annie was last seen, and they interviewed everyone who had worked there that day. Something criminal had happened to Annie. The suspect could have been someone or must have been someone with a Yale ID card. Again, we're getting back to where she never left the building. So if there's something going on in there, you got to have your Yale ID card, right? Yeah, but that's just really unusual. Well, sure. That she would still be in the building. I don't think that really seemed like a possibility in the beginning. But that's where everything's pointing. Well, and yeah, and the police concentrated the investigation on students and employees who were entering Amistad on September 8th. Yep, exactly. But by September 10th, without a suspect or specific evidence of foul play, the police used blueprints of the building to plan an inspection of all the rooms and hallways of Amistad. Officers were assigned to each of the rooms and at different spots in the hallways. Because the area wasn't yet an official crime scene, the building did stay open, though, to other researchers and staff. Sniffer dogs were brought in, but they seemed confused because of all the animal and chemical smells in the labs made it difficult for them. i bet. Too many different aromas. Yeah. FBI agents met with Annie's co-workers who had been in Ten Amistad on the 8th. And one of these employees was Raymond Clark. He was an animal technician who had worked at Yale for the past five years. Okay, and before we get into this, let's take a moment here for our sponsor, Best Fiends. Yes, as you know, my latest guilty pleasure has been this show, Married at First Sight Australia. I just love it. It's so trashy. Those Aussies are just so much more outspoken than the Americans. Well, they're definitely less inhibited, that's for sure. <laughs> right. But the Best Fiends game is a pleasure of mine that I have absolutely no guilt about. I really love a good puzzle, and Best Fiends is a match-three puzzle game like none other. 
I never get bored with it because it has literally thousands of levels and new content added all the time. Because of the way no game is quite like the next, I call Best Fiends boredom's worst nightmare. It's actually been several months since I downloaded Best Fiends for free on my phone and iPad, and I'll admit that I'm a bit obsessed. Would you say? Uh, Yes, I think I could easily say a bit obsessed. Yeah. Well, at least I'm not, you know, super obsessed. No. You know, maybe more than a bit, maybe a lot, but not super. (laughs) Okay, but really, I do have a fairly busy life and Best Fiends fits into whatever's going on at any given time. I'm already on level 82, I can say with pride. I really love the cute creatures in the game and the rush of adrenaline I get each time I complete a level. I love just looking on my phone and seeing that little icon with the cute little fiend. You know, true crime is a stressful topic for us, so playing Best Fiends is a really nice, fresh way to have fun and to de-stress between doing research and recording these sessions. Yeah, and if you're like me when you're old and you're visiting different doctors, (laughs) this is a great thing to have when you're sitting in the waiting room because you know how long it takes to be seen in a doctor's waiting room, right? Yeah, I hate that. Me too, but I got my game and off I go. Yeah, it really is easy to pick up any time, isn't it? And you can play as little or as much as you want to. It's really casual gameplay that fits into anyone's life, even yours. And that's whether you want to binge play for hours or just play for a few minutes until they call your name. So if you love solving puzzles, Best Fiends is really good news for you. The fun never ends with this clever, challenging puzzle game. But you know what? Don't blame me if you become slightly obsessed. I think that's just the nature of the game. I think they did that on purpose. I do too. So download Best Fiends today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So let's talk a little bit about this Raymond Clark III, because he's unfortunately a big part of this story. So he was born in January of 1985 in Wallingford, Connecticut. He grew up in the city of Branford, which is just eight miles east of New Haven, in a working-class neighborhood. After the local factory closed, the neighborhood deteriorated. So Clark's family moved to a condominium in Cromwell, where unemployment was below the state's average and income was above average. So at the time of Annie's disappearance, Clark's parents were separated. His mother worked at a Walmart across from the condo, and his father was retired. Now, Clark had done well in high school, and he was a popular guy. Not only was he a good-looking boy, And yeah, I've seen some high school pictures. He's passable. He was a cute kid. He was an honor student and an athlete. Yeah, so he really could have been going places too. He was the star pitcher on the school baseball team and the star quarterback on the football team. He was considered to be both talented and committed by his coaches and his teachers. Now, Clark had many friends, but he could still be a little bit shy around new people and just kind of clam up and not speak. Yeah, but I think if you're the head pitcher or whatever they call it in the quarterback, you might start feeling a little entitled to things, a little bit superior maybe. Well, yeah. If you look at the runnings of a high school, here you've got a a good-looking guy who's intelligent and a star athlete. Yeah, so he really... Those are all pluses. He had a lot going for him, yeah. Yeah. 
His former teammates knew he was competitive and he really cared about winning, but they also said he really was one of the nicest kids in the school. While in high school, he was in the Interact Club, where he and other kids raised money to help the homeless. Another club he was in was the Cheers for Charity Club, which raised money for lymphoma and leukemia research. The third was the Asian Awareness Club, where he and other students planned a trip to New York's Chinatown for Chinese New Year. But according to some of his old classmates, Clark wasn't really a member of the Asian Awareness Club. He and some of his friends had actually played a game to see how many yearbook photos they could be pictured in. So most likely, said one of Clark's friends, Clark had got into the Asian Awareness Club's photo as kind of a joke. But looking back, people would wonder, was he really attracted to Asian women? Was that part of this? We don't know. But as well-liked as he seemed to be, the police did find out that Ray Clark had a dark side. A young woman named Jessica had dated Clark in high school back when she was 16 years old and he was 18. And she said he seemed like the perfect guy in the beginning, but then he slowly changed. He started trying to control her and even began telling her what to wear, how she should speak, and who she could spend time with. He would tell her not to go to certain places and not to be friends with certain people. So that didn't go over well with her. She even admitted that she had sometimes been afraid of Ray Clark. When he would get this certain look on his face, she said, she knew she was in trouble. He would get angry and sometimes physical. So Jessica said that she would sometimes do what he asked just to avoid a fight. And finally, she had decided that the relationship wasn't worth it and she wanted out. But it wasn't so easy to get out of it either. When she tried to break up with Clark, he confronted her and wrote what she called an unwanted message on her locker. So I'm not sure what that said, but I'm thinking it was probably something quite critical. Oh, sure. And right. Yeah. And that's when she got the school and the police involved. So in 2003, she filed a police report stating that Clark had forced her to have sex with him and that she was now afraid of him. But when asked if she wished to press charges, she decided not to. She just wanted the police to be aware of the situation, she said. So Clark was warned by the police that if he had any contact with Jessica, he would face some criminal charges. And for two weeks after that, they escorted her from school to her car. But then after a while, both she and Clark started dating other people. And he seemed to forget about her. He left her alone. Oh, good. So nothing... Nothing bad happened out of that encounter. Well, only the forced sex, if you think that's bad. Right. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> this, that tiny little thing uh, was kind of not good. That one little thing. One little rape, yeah. So he graduated with honors from high school, but Clark decided he didn't want to go to college. Stayed in town, found a job. So that's pretty disappointing because it seemed like he'd put together a pretty good resume for college. Yeah. And if he was that good an athlete, wouldn't colleges have come after him? I would think so. But, you know, young people. Yeah. So what he most wanted to do is get a job at the Yale lab where his sister, his brother-in-law, and his fiance all worked. So getting a job as an animal technician at Yale was competitive. Yeah, it was a pretty good job, good benefits, really a nice, stable job if you didn't have a college degree especially. So he did decide to apply. He falsely reported, though, that he had worked with animals on a farm in the past, hoping that would give him the prior experience with animals. 
and he'd have an advantage in getting hired. Also, getting a recommendation from a relative or friend who already worked there was pretty much a necessity to get hired. So in December of 2004, Clark's sister Denise recommended him for a position in the washing center, and this position required him to clean dirty cages and lift heavy bags of food and bedding. So he got hired and he was happy, and from his first day at work, his strong work ethic and dedication were noted and appreciated. He was really looked at as a good worker. So he did have this girlfriend, Jennifer Romadka, and in March of 2009, he moved in with his fiance. Now Jennifer was a 23-year-old high school graduate, and she thought Clark was good-looking, athletic, and fun. He just seemed like the perfect guy for her. So they lived and worked together for quite a while and got along well. They shared a MySpace page, and they posed in silly photos that they would post on there. In one photo at a costume party, Clark had his face painted red and wore devil horns on his forehead like a devil. So when we look at that now, it's pretty creepy. And so Jennifer and Clark got engaged on New Year's Day 2008. According to their page on the wedding website, The Knot, they plan to get married on December 20th, 2011. Now they seem like a happy couple. But then in a May 15th, 2008 MySpace post, Jennifer defended Clark against rumors that he is having an affair with someone in the lab. Yeah, so she wrote, My boyfriend Ray, if you don't know him, has no interest in any other girls at YARC, the Yale Animal Resource Center, as anything more than friends. He is a bit naive, doesn't always use the best judgment, definitely is not the best judge of character, but he's a good guy. He has a big heart and he tries to see the best in people all the time. Even when everyone else is telling him that the person is a psycho or that the person can't be trusted, he thinks that everyone deserves a second chance. And he has a hard time hurting people's feelings, and it takes him getting burned to learn. This rumor of a fling is probably the most stupid thing I've ever heard, and really is not even worth going into detail about. If you know what I'm talking about, you can probably come to the conclusion that it's all a load of BS. So it sounds, though, like... She believes that he did have a fling. Well, at least that he, like, flirted with someone. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. But then she's denying it all. She's defending him, yes. So she's a little shaky in my mind. Yeah, because that's not a great statement by her. Well, why would you do that? That's what I'm saying. Why couldn't he speak for himself? And if it's a fake rumor, why not just ignore it? Well, that's, that's the first thing. Yeah, but, you know, they are young, so I'll give them a pass on that. Okay. So, of course, Clark was interviewed by the police about Annie's disappearance. He'd known Annie for a little over four months, but only professionally. He said that he saw Annie working on September 8th at about 10.30 a.m., and he claimed to have seen her again between 12.30 and 12.45, and she was carrying her notebook and two bags of mouse food. According to Clark, he arrived for work at about 7 a.m. on the morning of September 8th, and that day he was responsible for maintaining the animals housed in the basement in rooms G24, G33, and the Bennett Lab, where Annie worked, G13. He said that he left room G13 for lunch at about noon and returned at 12.30, and that's when he saw Annie with her notebook and the mouse food. There was a fire alarm which cleared out the building between 1 and 1.30, 
But during his interview, the police noticed that Clark had a scratch on his left bicep and on his face, and he told them that the scratches had come from one of his cats at his home. Yeah, you gotta watch those cats. I mean, how many times have we heard, I was playing with my cat? <laughs> you know, when, when someone actually murdered someone. Yes, well, it's a good explanation for the scratches. Well, those cats can be violent. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So on Thursday, September 10th, Ray Clark went to work as he normally would. The campus had flyers for the missing Annie Lay. They were asking anyone with any information to contact the Yale Police Department. So as investigators continued to question anyone who entered Tana Amistad, they also did more detailed searches of the building. So officers were stationed at each entrance and exit of the building, as well as many of the lab rooms and at different locations along the hallways. So this is close to 48 hours after she disappeared, and a lot of people would question why it took them so long to do this in-depth search. It seems like it took longer than it had to. Well, that's a good question, mm -hmm. because I, I think pretty quickly it was determined that she was missing. She just hadn't wandered off someplace or anything like that. There's a true missing person. Yeah, I think part of the problem is they didn't take it that seriously at first. I think not until they saw her purse and... Yeah. Then talked to her fiancé, and they started really thinking, yeah, this is foul play. So room G13 was about 16 feet by 10 feet. Soon after two officers arrived that morning and looked around G13, a young woman approached them, and she introduced herself. So her name was Rachel Roth, and she was a postdoctorate fellow and a co-worker of Annie's. So Rachel told the officers that something frightening had just caught her eye. Pointing to a box of white balls on a steel cart in the corner, she pointed out some blood spots on the box. One of the officers walked over to the cart to get a closer look. To her, it looked like it could be blood spatter. She called the FBI agents who were working in the building to come and take a look at it. So as the two officers were waiting for the agents to get there, a lab technician entered G13 and then left, and then entered, and then exited several more times. So, That's this suspicious. was Ray. Yes. This was Ray why, Clark. Why does he keep coming in and out? Well, he does even more suspicious things. Yeah. Because during one of these times he was in the room, he was observed going over to that cart and looking at that box of wipes. And the police watched him as he positioned himself between the police and the wipes and then turned to face them. And he started to chat with the female officer. And as he did this, he leaned his body against the cart and moved the box of wipes from where it was on the far left corner of the cart to the far right corner of the cart. So I don't know why he thought he would do this and nobody would notice. I'm just, you're going over this stuff and I'm picturing in my head how guilty he must have looked. Right, right. And after that move, the bloody part of the box of wipes was facing the right-hand side of the cart, so it was out of their sight. So he must have felt satisfied that he'd effectively removed the bloody box from the officer's view, because then he began to scrub the floor under the sink near the drain. He was using an SOS pad and some cleaning solution. So when FBI agent Jim Wines and special agent Lisa McNamara entered room G13, they asked Clark to wait outside so they could speak with the officers alone. And the officers reported to the agents what had just happened, noting that Clark, the tech, had moved the box 
and it seemed to be a deliberate attempt to block their view from the box. Yeah, it does. So just using her fingernail so she wouldn't compromise the evidence, the officer pushed the box of white balls back to its original position. Both of the police officers reported that Clark had started to scrub several areas of the floor, even though to them the floor looked clean. A few minutes later, members of the FBI New Haven field office response team came into that room, and of course they collected the box of wipes. Then the box of wipes was sent out to the state of Connecticut forensic laboratory for examination and DNA testing. So at this point in the investigation, Annie's disappearance was still technically a missing persons case. They still had no conclusive evidence of foul play, and the blood on the box of wipes could have been anybody's, right? Even an animal's. But now that Clark had been reported as acting strangely, he really drew their suspicion on him. He certainly did. And investigators decided that he was a person of interest. Although the police had been examining the card swipes of every student and employee who entered Ten Amistad on the days before September 8th, on September 8th, and on the following days, they decided they needed to take an even closer look at the activity of Ray Clark. And so looking over the key card records, the authorities discovered that on September 8th, which is the day Annie disappeared, Clark repeatedly used his key card in rooms G13 and G22. Now, G-22 is a smaller room, 8 by 8 feet. They noted that this activity was higher than his key card activity on other days. So, in other words, he, he was breaking routine on the day Annie went missing. By a lot. It wasn't subtle. So, between August 27th and September 7th, Clark used his key card in room G-22 for a total of three times. On September 8th, he used it 11 times in that one day. Looking at G13, between August 29th and September 7th, he had only been in there once. But on September 8th, he had accessed G13 five times. So they also noted that on September 8th, Clark's use of his key card was much higher between 10.40 a.m. and 3.45 p.m. than it had been during the same time frame on any other day. There was a total of 55 key card entries. So that's extraordinary. It sure is. I wonder if he thought that there would be no record. Well, maybe he didn't think they'd look at that. True. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't think this was a really well-planned-out crime. No, it, was, it sounds like crime of opportunity. Yes, yes. Or of rage or something. We really don't know. But if you look specifically at Clark's entries to room G13 on September 8th, Records showed that he entered the room at exactly 10.40 and 59 seconds a.m. So these key card swipes are down to the second. And at some point, Clark left the room because at 11.04 a.m., records showed he used his key card again to access room G13. And after that, there were no key card entries for Clark for a full 46 minutes. And we're thinking this could be when something happened. Records of Clark's card also showed that he entered the building at 10 Amistad at least 10 times on September 8th, including after-hours visits, which is really unusual. I mean, going in after hours is something he had actually never done in the past. He wouldn't have reason to. Well, no, he's a worker. So he's really brought the suspicion in on him. 
So by the end of the day, September 8th, Clark had used his key card to enter six rooms. That's G7C, G13, G23, G25, G26, and G33, indicating that he had moved in and out of rooms that he was not assigned to that day and where he really basically had no business being inside. In order to see if Annie's card swipes on September 8th would show them her proximity to Clark on that day, the officers looked at them as well. So records show that Annie had swiped her card three times on September 8th. And when comparing the use of her key card on the 8th with previous weeks, there was no evidence found in a, there was no difference found in the number of swipes or in the places she entered. So nothing out of the ordinary about her card. No, so she was having an ordinary day, at least for a while, right? Uh, so it appears. So the last entry recorded on Annie's card on September 8th was at 1011 to access room G13. Her key card was never used again, and not long after her arrival, Clark's key card was used to access G13 at 1040 and then again at 1104. The really the most significant thing was that Clark appeared to have remained in G13 for over three quarters of an hour before he swiped his card again because they don't swipe to get out of the rooms. Right. After 46 minutes of no swipes on his card, then he made a lot of movement between the basement rooms. He just accessed one room after another. He was up to something, moving between G22 and G13 several times, and then going into the men's locker room. So now Clark is looking totally suspicious. More and more. That's that's true. Yes. And investigators decided to check the Amistad sign-in schedule task sheets. On September 8th, the sign-in sheet showed that a person using the initials RC, Raymond Clark, entered six rooms. And this was the same information that was in the records of his keycard swipes. All of the entries for RC for the entire day, except for one, were made in green ink. And that was what he usually used. But the last green ink entry was written at 1.30 p.m. for room G7C. The entry after that, which was to room G26 at 3.48 p.m., had the initials RC again on the sign-in sheet. But it was significant to note that this time the initials were written in black ink. So what had happened to his signature green ink pen? A minor thing, but they're starting to piece some things together. So investigators decided they'd take another look at the over 700 hours of surveillance video. Now they focused their attention on Clark's statement that Annie had exited the building at around 12.30 p.m. But as carefully as they combed through every second of the footage, they couldn't find any pictures of Annie exiting the building at any time that day. So then they were looking to see, did someone come out carrying a, a big bag or anything that she could have been in? And they didn't see that either. But they did see something that really interested them. So on the morning of the 8th, Clark arrived at Amistad wearing jeans, white shoes, and a dark jacket with white stripes. Later CCTV footage showed him entering the building after a break wearing blue scrubs with a red drawstring. Then, when exiting the building after the fire drill, Clark was seen wearing blue scrubs with a blue drawstring. And at the end of the day, the CCTV footage showed Clark leaving the building in jeans 
and a dark colored t-shirt. So it looks like we've got uh, three or four clothing changes in that one day. Sure. I mean, they had to consider why he would have changed his clothes so many times that day. And if there was nothing else suspicious, I wouldn't think too much of it. I mean, working in a hospital would be kind of similar where things happen and you need to change your scrubs. Yeah. But put together with all these other things, it certainly was significant. Uh-huh. So by that Friday morning, the Yale Police Department, the FBI, and the New Haven Police Department, as well as the Connecticut State Police, were all watching Clark. And, of course, suspicions are growing. He'd volunteered information to them about the time Annie left the building on the 8th, but it wasn't true. The detectives couldn't see her in any of the CCTV footage, and all of the exits and entrances had cameras on them. Also, he'd moved that box of wipes that seemed to have blood on it, and this looked like a blatant attempt to hide the stains from the police officers that were present. Oh, absolutely. That one little thing by itself is enough for me to be suspicious of him. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. There wasn't anything subtle about that. But he thought he was kind of hiding it, (laughs) which is weird. Also, he'd cleaned the floor of G13 when it didn't look dirty. And the keycard swipes are incredibly incriminating. They showed not only a different pattern of entry to and exit from the building compared to other days, but also he had been the last person in G13 when Annie was working there that day. Also, investigators had noticed bruises now under one of Clark's eyes and also on his arms, chest, and one of his ears. And that's in addition to the scratches. That was a pretty tough cat he was wrestling with. Yeah, maybe it was like a big cat. Mountain lion. (laughs) So by that afternoon, investigators felt certain that Clark knew something that he wasn't telling them. So six detectives were immediately assigned to keep tabs on Clark. And there was a medical student who had worked alongside Clark that evening at Amistad, told investigators that he hadn't sensed anything different in Clark's behavior. Which could mean something, or it could just mean he's a sociopath or a good actor. But that CCTV footage showed that during the fire alarm on the 8th, Clark had actually walked across the street to where there's a park, and he sat on some steps, and he sat there with his head in his hands. So that was curious, like something was going on, he'd acted normal and all these other things, but he'd done that, which was weird. To them, this looked like someone who was troubled, maybe someone who had done something terrible and was distressed. But that same night, in a MySpace post, Clark's fiancée Jennifer wrote, Who are you to judge the life I live? I know I'm not perfect, and I don't live to be, but before you start pointing fingers, make sure your hands are clean. This is just weird. We don't know what it's in reference to. Yeah, what's with that? There's nothing that tells us why she wrote that. No, not really. And later on, she added, I have realized that in the last few weeks, the kind of people I want and need in my life. I have no time for your drama or your BS. Take it elsewhere. It is not my problem that you have no life. I'm completely done. Don't come to me when your friends stab you in the back. I don't want to know about it because I don't care. So what do you think of this Jennifer? She's an odd duck. She sure is. She's very defensive of him. I'm just thinking this is related to him. Likely. Yeah. And maybe she knew something about what Clark had done to Annie. I really wonder. But we don't have any evidence. No evidence of it, so we really can't point the finger at her, but it's odd. It's very odd. 
So September 12th, which is now uh, four days after Annie disappeared, investigators from the Connecticut State Police Western District Major Crime Squad, boy, that's a title, processed the lower floor at 10 Amistad for physical evidence. So some things tested positive for the presence of blood when they used their presumptive chemical tests. Investigators had found one rubber glove with blood stains, a low-cut white sock with hairs and blood on it. And both these were found in a drop ceiling. <laughs> Not where you'd look for them, right? No, and we will find out that Annie was wearing white socks that day. They also found a pair of work boots with gray C written on them in a locker and a blue scrub top with blood stains in a recycling box. Yeah, and the work boots would turn out to have a little blood spitter on them as well. Uh-huh. So it's really closing in on this guy. It's not looking good, Ray. <laughs> no, it's not. So through the chemical analysis, investigators found blood stains that had been cleaned up in room G22. Remember, he'd spent a lot of time in that room. And in room G13, they also found some medium-velocity blood stains on a wall. And someone had tried to clean this up, which makes it even more damning. Yep. Investigators decided to release this information to the public. Potential evidence had been located, and DNA testing would determine whether there are any persons of interest. The fact that they were closing in on a specific person of interest was something that they didn't want to share. So that's a secret between the police right now. Yeah. And DNA testing on the blood spatters and clothing would take several days. Yeah, so let's go to Sunday morning, September 13th, which would have been Annie's wedding day. Students gathered in a campus chapel to pray for the safety of Annie and to share a moment of silence. That same morning, Clark went to play softball. He now had a lawyer to advise him, but since he spent most of the day on the baseball field, he had no idea about what was going on at Amistad. The building was full of agents and police special units, they were combing through every nook and cranny of that basement, the trash, and the park outside of the building. While at his baseball game, Clark, his fiancée Jennifer, and his mom casually talked with other teammates and their families, and Clark was reported to be very upbeat and friendly, even playing with the children of his teammates before the game started. Although the people in the stands were mostly the usual friends and families of the players, there were actually some detectives from the New Haven Narcotics Unit there who were watching Clark, so they were just pitching in to help. Now, these detectives didn't stand out in any way, though, and no one seemed to notice that they were there, that anything different was going on. Later that day, Clark visited his sister and his brother-in-law in Higginham, Connecticut, he then drove around 50 miles northeast to New Haven to the Hebron Fair, and after the fair he returned to his family's home in Cromwell. He had no idea, though, that he was being followed everywhere by those detectives. They're but, not going to let him out of their sight. Yeah, he's really a good person of interest. In fact, it seems like they're probably thinking that he's the perpetrator. They can't say that, but they must have felt pretty certain that he was involved in something. Yeah. And then things went from bad to worse. Yeah, around 5 o'clock that afternoon, the worst possible outcome happened. Investigators detected an odor, which was like a decomposition odor, in a locker room on the lower level of Amistad. 
This is a distinctive aroma to anyone familiar with it, and it led authorities to Annie's dead body. She was found stuffed into a wall behind a toilet. She is upside down and appeared to have some broken bones. There was a small access panel where the pipes could be accessed, and that was opened, and they could immediately see blood smears on the insulation, on the access panel and the door. The loose insulation had been removed from inside and was put on top of Annie's body to conceal her. So this is, of course, a horrible thing, the way she's stuffed in there like that. But I can't help but think, what was Clark thinking? He didn't think he was just going to be able to let her decompose in there and not get caught. Well, yeah, I mean... He's out playing baseball unless he's thinking, I might as well enjoy myself because I'm going to prison soon. Well, that's a thought. Yeah. Or maybe he thought later he'd be able to move her out. Yeah, but we're a week after her disappearance, so he's lost that opportunity. There's the decomposition smell, and there's no way you're going to get around that. No, of course not. Well, after detectives carefully removed her body from the wall, they took it to the medical examiner's office where the autopsy would be done. And inside that wall, along with her body, investigators had found a green ink pen. Also a stained lab coat and another ankle, a white ankle sock. Annie was still wearing one rubber glove with the left thumb exposed. And sadly, she'd been found on Sunday, which would have been her wedding day. So it hasn't been quite a week, but it has been several days, and I wonder why it took him so long. I would have thought by the next day there would be a bit of an odor. They did bring the dogs in, and I guess there was some confusion there, but I feel like they could have done a better job. Still, what a tragedy. This is her wedding day, and instead, she's been murdered and stuffed into a wall. It's just dreadful. It's horrendous. So other physical evidence was taken from room G-22. This included two necklace beads, some hair fibers, there was a cleaning bottle with blood stains, and there were blood stains on an interior wall. So the prime suspect is clearly Raymond Clark, and evidence against him was piling up. So he agreed to take a polygraph, which he failed. With warrants, samples were taken from him from his person, including buckle swabs for DNA, body and head hairs, fingerprints, palm prints, and photos. Then on September 15th, a search and seizure warrant was served on Clark's apartment, and during this search they found bloodstains in plain view on the kitchen floor near the apartment's entrance. And this makes me wonder about Jennifer. She lived there. Maybe you wouldn't notice some tiny bloodstains if you're not like a super clean person. But still, it does raise a little doubt in my mind. Yep. Then they also searched Clark's car, which was registered in his father's name and was parked at Clark's apartment building. In the car, in plain view, there was a pair of white sneakers with blood stains, a scrub top, and a garbage bag. Now, he'd had days to clean this up. Yeah. So maybe he's not as smart as they thought. I just don't know what this guy was thinking clearly wasn't. No. Not rationally. But even the motive isn't clear. So the next day, the car was towed to the New Haven police garage where it was secured and it would be analyzed forensically. On Monday, 2,000 people gathered to remember Annie. One of her roommates, Natalie Powers, spoke about the loving and funny woman Annie had been. 
University chaplain, Sharon Kugler, who had spent time with the lay family, shared a prayer. After singing Amazing Grace, a violin played that same hymn, and over 100 mourners put candles on the steps leading from Sterling Memorial Library to the lawn. Bouquets and candles were also laid around the fence leading to the building, and as the candles burned, students and faculty stayed for over an hour, just remembering Annie and comforting one another. Although not all of these people even knew Annie personally, her murder was shocking and there was just an overall sadness among everyone there. But in addition to criticism of the police, Yale also came under attack. People questioned why there weren't surveillance cameras in the basement or anywhere else within the building. Students said that once they entered the building, their cell phones no longer worked, and the soundproofed rooms made it impossible to hear a person if they were calling for help in one of the rooms. So maybe safe on the outside, but not so safe on the inside. But at the same time, you have to have a card to access the building. So if you've done background checks on all the employees, it's pretty safe to assume that you'd be safe within the building. Probably. I think that this is just an anomaly. This isn't something that you would expect. Oh, for sure. I mean, you'd be more worried about someone grabbing her off the street. Just makes sense. You would? Yeah, I think so. So criminal profiler Pat Brown gave her opinion on the case, both on The Early Show and Larry King Live. Now, since Annie had never left Amistad, she said all the evidence is there. Brown then went on to say that because Annie had not gone to a dangerous location, but was in a place where she felt safe, the only fault she could have is that she was too nice to somebody that she worked with and didn't realize that they were obsessing over her. She believed the killer was a guy who thought he was entitled to her and was angry that she was not choosing him and was going to marry someone else. Annie never saw it coming because she was just too nice of a person. Well, I could see that, yeah. I definitely could, but there's no evidence that there was a relationship or that he was even stalking her. No. So really the motive is not clear. Before the autopsy was done on Annie's body, the coroner gave the FBI the clothes that had been on her body, and there was a round reddish-colored bead along with a broken string within her clothing. Investigators were interested in comparing the bead with the beads they had recovered from the basement of Amistad. Of course, it matched. Chief Medical Examiner Dr. H. Wayne Carver II performed the autopsy, and after he made a public statement, he declared that the body found in the wall was Annie and that her death was a homicide. So no big surprise there. The official cause of death for Annie was traumatic asphyxia due to neck compression. And later it was revealed that she had a broken jaw and a broken collarbone, and these injuries, the medical examiner said, happened while she was still alive. So it seems like she had been attacked. Also, her bra had been pushed up and her panties were pulled down to her ankles. And detectives did find some semen on a panty liner and other areas of her body. So it looked like there could have been a sexual assault or at least an attempted sexual assault. Yeah, well, that to, to me, that just goes along with him being obsessed with her. It does. And I think that's probably the strongest motive we could come up with, but there are others, and we're going to get into that because there are several, and some of them are just a little crazy. I'm sure. So New Haven Police Department spokesperson 
Joe Avery stated that the police believe Annie was targeted. He said he didn't think another student was involved, but he wouldn't go into detail. And he claimed that although there were no suspects, authorities were concentrating their attention on a few people of interest who were being very closely followed and who were known to have been in the building at the time Annie disappeared. But the media was reporting that police were interviewing a possible suspect who had failed a polygraph and who had scratches on his body. The New Haven Register reported that the suspect was a lab tech. Yeah, so things are leaking out. Yep. And by Tuesday morning, this is one week after Annie went missing, there still wasn't anyone in custody. Even with hundreds of pieces of evidence, the 700 hours of video surveillance, and hundreds of interviews, the police hadn't made an arrest. So the community was waiting for the results from her autopsy, and many people were frustrated that the investigation seemed to be taking too long. The community wanted to know what was being done to solve the murder, they were becoming angry, and of course they were worried, is there a killer out there? Are we safe? So by 10 o'clock, no news of an arrest or the name of a person of interest had been released. As officers worked through the night to get the arrest and warrant paperwork together, others were staking out the motel where Clark was now staying. By 7 a.m. Thursday morning, reporters, photographers, and even some onlookers were camped out across the street from the Super 8 Motel in Cromwell. Five police cars were in the parking lot, and a little after 8 a.m., authorities closed down the highway outside of the motel and blocked the road leading to it. There was a convoy of police and FBI cars that drove to the motel, and police surrounded the building. Two plainclothes state detectives knocked on the door of the motel room where Clark had been staying with his father. So maybe there had been some falling out with Jennifer at this point. We're not sure what was happening between these two. Oh, he's not with her. He's not with her. his dad. But minutes later, Clark came out in handcuffs and was directed to a cruiser, and there were onlookers there who applauded as he was put into the patrol car. So this was a relief to many people. One spectator described Clark as a clean-cut kid who meekly passed through the motel lobby. Clark was driven to the New Haven police station. Then just after 10 a.m., he was led into a courtroom at the New Haven Superior Court for his arraignment. Two public defenders from the Connecticut Public Defender's Office had been assigned to his case, and they stood by his side as he stood before the judge, and that's when he was officially charged with Annie's murder. During this whole time period, there was a lot of criticism over how much attention Annie's case was getting compared with the murders of other people in New Haven. The nonprofit Change.org released a statement stating that Annie's murder received more attention because she was an Ivy Leaguer and an attractive young woman. Yeah, but that's not specific to Yale. No. There's always more attention to an attractive or a wealthy or an educated person. And she wasn't wealthy, but she was the other two. Yes, she was. If she'd been a blonde, it probably would have been even worse. Right. So after he was arrested... Ray Clark was held in a maximum security prison on a $3 million bail. His hearing was scheduled for January 2010. On January 26, 2010, he pleaded not guilty, and he had a pretrial pretrial hearing scheduled for that March. 
Yeah, but March passed, and then in October, his case was continued, and his next hearing wouldn't be until February of 2011. Finally, in March 2011, Clark entered a plea deal in Annie's murder, and he took a 44-year prison term. On another charge of attempted sexual assault, he was allowed to enter an Alford plea. Remember, an Alford plea is a guilty plea that concedes there is enough evidence to find him guilty, but he doesn't actually admit his guilt. That was a Michael Peterson thing. That's right. That's when I first learned about the Alford plea. At his sentencing, Clark expressed some remorse, but he never did offer his motive for killing Annie, which was really frustrating. So a lot of people were debating and just throwing out ideas of what the motive could have been. Psychiatrists and criminologists, as well as ordinary citizens, weighed in on what they believed his motive was. New Haven Police Chief James Lewis was one of the first to speak publicly about this, and he said, It is important to note that this is not about urban crime, university crime, domestic crime, but it's an issue of workplace violence, which is becoming a growing concern around the country. So I think it depends on his motive, if you're going to call it workplace violence. Several people who worked in the lab with Annie Lay and Ray Clark told police that Clark viewed the research lab as his personal fiefdom, meaning that he tried to rule over the laboratory. It was his. And they reported that Clark felt Annie had been flaunting the lab rules. Clark had sent an email to Annie on the day she went missing, complaining about the lack of cleanliness in her mouse cages. He had requested a meeting with her that morning to discuss the situation. Yes, so according to some anonymous sources, Annie had written back politely and agreeing with him. You know, no problem. Everyone who knew Annie personally said that she would never demean Clark or be rude to him or argue with him. Hector Alvarez, a workplace violence prevention specialist, then told ABC News 10 that most likely Clark's controlling behavior didn't just start the day that he killed Annie. Alvarez said that a person who suffers from workplace-related anger can allow their emotions to escalate until they reach a boiling point. Although many people thought that Clark could not possibly have killed Annie over such a minor thing as dirty mouse cages, Alvarez said it made no difference how big or small the problem was. The perpetrator, he said, feels frustration that just builds up. Workplace violence can be triggered by many things. Dissatisfaction, unrequited romantic interest, jealousy over someone else getting a promotion, or even anger over workplace rules. So when you think of workplace violence, it's usually not the guy coming in with a gun and shooting people. It's more one-on-one situations between people in the workplace. And there's another possible motive for Annie's murder, and that's that she was the victim of a gender-based crime against a woman. So gender-based violence includes rape, murder, domestic violence, and sexual abuse. Now, people discussing this theory noted that women's lives and well-being were often in peril as they suffered from on-the-job harassment and other injustices. Well, Anna Parks, a graduate of one of the 12 residential colleges at Yale, actually wrote a letter to the Yale Daily News. And in the letter, she reminded people that Annie's murder was but one tragic example of the continued victimization of women around the world. She stated that the murder was unspeakably heinous and evil, but that other attacks against women, more subtle and less covered by the press, can also be really damaging. 
so she cited the preseason scouting report, an email sent out by Yale men, where they rated the attractiveness of Yale freshman girls. So that's really creepy. Isn't that how Facebook started? Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's gross. So, of course, it's not comparable to Annie's murder, but it did show an unwelcoming and unsafe climate for women on Yale's campus. And I'm sure it's not just Yale, it's all colleges. Oh, absolutely. So criminologist Jack Levin spoke publicly about the way in which Annie had been killed. He said when one strangles another person, the strangler not only demonstrates a volatile personality, but also control issues. And we've heard that he did have control issues in other relationships. Yes. An up-close-and-personal murder requires a tremendous amount of anger. Controlling men often display their anger in their relationships with women. They want to make their victims suffer, and there are certain men who treat women like possessions, so they can be very jealous, possessive, and even feel like if I can't have her, nobody can. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'd have to say that's really not that unusual, unfortunately. No, I don't think it is. So a big theory is Annie's murder was the result of unrequited love. Maybe Clark had secretly lusted after Annie, and when her marriage was approaching, he was really outraged that he couldn't have her. Maybe Clark and Annie were involved in a romantic relationship, some people have said, and she told him something like, after the wedding, we won't be able to do this anymore. So Clark snapped in a jealous rage. But still, those who knew her did not believe that she would have been involved with Clark at all. She was very focused and very much in love with her fiancé, so it doesn't seem like something she would have been involved in. But, you know, even if she's friendly to him, sometimes guys get the wrong message. And he could have become obsessed with her. That's certainly a possibility. I think so. And you know, here she is. She's an attractive woman. Yeah. And if he's lusting after her, he might not be that overt about things. And Annie's a polite person. She's not going to be nasty to him. No, I think she was probably quite friendly to him, and he could have taken it the wrong way. Definitely. That's my take. Okay, but still, it seems like a lot to do that to her. There had to be a lot of rage in this person that we weren't aware of, or people in his life weren't aware of. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thinking that this was the day when she disappeared. This was the day that he told her that he was in love with her and she shouldn't be marrying that other guy. Wow. And she said, fat chance, buddy, <laughs> or something like that. Maybe. And he snapped. That's that's a pretty strong motive. Yeah, I think that's a pretty strong theory that you have there, too. But one really interesting theory on the motive was actually published in an article by Susan Block, a sex therapist, in 2019 on counterpunch.org. She wrote that when she heard that Annie's killer was a lab technician, she thought about another young man who was a lab technician and worked with mice in a university facility. This guy called her radio show years earlier and asked her for dating advice. Then he had confessed to her that he sexually gratified himself with the lab mice where he worked. And he confessed to putting a cardboard tube up his anus and letting the mice run in the tube into and out of his rectum. So I know that sounds really gross, but it apparently is <laughs> it, a thing. It's a thing. It does sound really gross. Yep. The Urban Dictionary calls this behavior felching. So, of course, it's animal cruelty. It's horrible. But Clark was known to be a stickler for keeping those mouse cages clean 
Was that because he was a felcher? Susan Block thought maybe that was it. What if he'd been using the mice sexually, and what if Annie had caught him? If she'd threatened to report him, that would be motive enough to kill her, because the humiliation, the loss of job, that would be a big deal. It sure would. So it's a little out there, but I certainly think it is possible. Yeah, as we say, possible but not probable. Yes, exactly. Then there's the fact that Clark was in the Asian Awareness Club in high school, so maybe he had kind of a thing for Asian women. Yeah, and that would be part of the romantic interest deal. Yeah, and not having an Asian girlfriend may have caused him to be even more infatuated with someone like Annie. If he knew that this could be the last time or last chance he would have to have sex with Annie before she got married, he may have tried to force himself on her and ended up strangling her when she resisted. Yeah, now some of these theories could be combined, right? It doesn't have to be just one of these things. Right. Because there's also the steroid theory. What if he was using steroids and had an explosive temper? That could have contributed. According to friends and some photos... Clark had looked much more muscular in the time leading up to this murder than he had been. And he was a bully. And bullies are usually aggressive and have hair-trigger tempers and very fragile egos. But for me, this is tough. This guy had no record of disciplinary action at Yale. So if you're going to look at the steroid theory, I think it would have to be combined with the romantic interest being rebuffed. Yeah. Or some other thing. You don't have any evidence that he used steroids. No, you don't. These are just ideas people threw out there. Oh, sure. And it's interesting to talk about it because we don't really know the motive, which drives me insane. (laughs) You want to know what it is. Of course. I mean, when something horrible like this happens, you just really want to make sense of it. Well, yeah, you do. You do. But even even if you are told that Clark had a thing for Annie. Uh Uh-huh. That doesn't make it any better. Well, no. It's just inquiring minds want to know, basically. I think it's just human nature to try and make sense of things when they happen. Oh, sure. Because if you just think, well, that can just happen to anybody, it's scary. It is. One final thing, in terms of motive, some sociologists said that relative deprivation could explain Clark's actions. Yeah, now explain that. Relative deprivation is defined as the discontent that people experience when they're feeling that they're being deprived of something they're entitled to. This would be something that another person or group possesses. So the mindset of a person experiencing feelings of relative deprivation could be triggered when he is measuring his own self-worth against others and he turned out to be inferior. Well, yeah, that goes along with the fragile ego and being a working-class person working among these highly educated people. I could see that that could be intimidating, and it could also make you feel a little less if you don't have a strong sense of self. Yeah. So he also may have misinterpreted her distracted behavior, because she had a lot on her mind, for being dismissive of him. And that could be hard for him to take, because she was younger, smarter probably, and smaller, and a woman. These Yale students really are on a fast track to very productive, secure lives. And Clark was cleaning animal cages in floors of a basement lab. Any job that you do, you should be proud of. But the gulf between these two worlds really could lead to some tension, and with someone like him, some rage. So, we'll probably never know exactly why he murdered Annie Lay, 
but the police had so much evidence that they didn't even need a motive in order to get a conviction. Still, I want an explanation, but I think I'm never really going to have one. I don't think so, unless Mr. Clark offers that from his jailhouse. Well, you know, the thing that he didn't say there was a motive makes me wonder about the uh, sexual stuff with the mice, because that's something he'd never admit to, right? He might admit if he was having an affair with her, he had a crush on her, they argued about the mouse cages, but if he did that weird sexual thing with the mice, he would never tell anyone that. Well, then in 2011, Yale University settled a wrongful death lawsuit that was filed by Annie's mother, Vivian Van Lay. And according to probate court documents, that case was settled for $3 million. So Yale forked over some money. Yeah, well, they really had to. But when looking at it, I don't think that they were really that much in the wrong. I think they did a lot to try and provide security. Yeah, they did. But it happened on their campus. Right, exactly. So they're going to be held responsible regardless. Right. So our sources for this case are the Yale Alumni Magazine, 2009, NBC News Reports of 2009, the State of Connecticut Superior Court Documents, Counterpunch.com from September 2009, the article by Susan Block, and also a book, A Murder at Yale, which was written by Stella Sands. Like you said, there are some documentary videos. I believe one is on the See No Evil investigation discovery series, and there's another one on oxygen. So a couple of them, and they were both pretty well done, and they both had some different information that contributed to putting this episode together, so that's always good. TCB's music was written and produced by Tristan Capel, and if you have comments, a case suggestion, or even a beer recommendation, we would really love to hear from you. You can send us an email to truecrimebrewery at tiegrabber.com, or you can go to our website, tiegrabber.com, and you can contribute your comments there. Or even better, in my opinion, leave us a voicemail. I put a direct link in our show notes for you to click on and record what you want to say to us. If you'd like to get your future TCB episodes commercial-free, get an extra members-only episode each month, and have us send you a gift, you might want to consider subscribing as a tie grabber at tiegrabber.com. That way you get a URL and you can add the premium show, which has no ads and extra episodes, to your podcast app. Also, if you enjoy the show, we'd really appreciate your leaving us a review. And you can do that on iTunes or pretty much anywhere where you listen to us. So I'm going to take you into the feedback section now, Jill. Thank you. I'm following you. And there are no voicemails this week. We had some complimentary ones, which we appreciate, but nothing really to talk about. No, no case suggestions or comments. No, so... We came up a little dry this week, but we've had a ton of voicemails lately. We have, so... So overall, we're doing great there. I'm not going to lose hope. I know someone else will do it. I will guarantee you. But I did find a, a few emails that I think would be interesting, so let's check them out. All right. Okay, the first one is from the Certified Alienist. I think we've gotten messages from that person before. We have. And he has a case suggestion, he or she. And I've edited the letter a little bit, but... A case I'd like to hear your interpretational perceptions on is the Catherine Hoggle case. She was said to have killed two of her three children, who are not yet to this day been found. Her family disclosed that she has had known mental health issues, although her boyfriend and father of the three kids claims to not have known 
through the years they've been parenting together. I have numerous questions, but I'll save them for your podcast because I'm confident you will cover much of what confuses me. So, I don't know, that's a lot of confidence you have there, alienist. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, just quickly looked her up. Her kids, ages two and three, were killed in 2014. And then in September, Catherine was arrested and charged with misdemeanors in their deaths. January 2015, she was found incompetent to stand trial. And this is what the family's talking about. Sure. And then in eight following evaluations, she was found incompetent every time. So in 2017, the charges were changed to murder. Well, that's interesting how we made that step. Well, it apparently is because if she's ruled incompetent and the, the charge is misdemeanors, you have a three-year window with the competency issue that you either have to go to court or drop the charges. Okay? Okay. So, here we are in September 2017. It's three years from when she was charged with the misdemeanors. So, they charged her with murder. Okay. And, and that way, they don't have to dismiss charges. Okay. Okay? Now, the interesting thing about that is how how long do you go for the competency stuff? So, what they're looking at, if, if she'd already had three years... And they they changed the charges to murder. Sure. Um, in two more years, that's five years. Then you got to. That's the window for murder. If you don't become competent within five years, you're going to drop the murder charges. So I'm assuming she's in therapy in a mental hospital. She's in a mental hospital. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So that's just sad, really. It is. And and what her lawyers are arguing now is that. Well, this happened in 2014, and if you're doing the five years for the murder charges, uh, that's 2019, she's not been taken to trial. The prosecution says, well, when we charged her with murder in 2017, that kind of reset the clock. So they have until 2022 to decide whether she's going to go to trial or not. Doesn't sound like she is. No, it doesn't. And it's really hard to speculate too much without knowing more details. Because there's a lot of behind the scenes here we don't know about, obviously. Yeah. So I thought that was a fascinating thing. It sounds really fascinating, yes. I think her diagnosis is that she's uh, paranoid schizophrenic, something in that ballpark. Well, the thing with these crimes where someone's mentally ill is there's usually people in their lives that have let things go that they shouldn't have, or... Lots of times there's institutions and guardrails that fail to prevent these things from happening, and that's where our focus needs to be on doing something before these children were killed, doing something to protect them. Right. And I guess it's not possible in every single case, but you look at Andrea Yates. That was just spelled out. That should have been predicted and prevented. That's why we put a lot of blame on her husband. Leaving her alone with those kids was totally inappropriate. Yeah. and She was the, seriously mentally ill. There wasn't anything good that was going to come out of that situation. No, no. So that's a great one that we'll look more oh, that, into. That's from The Alienist. Now we have a case suggestion from Jack. Okay, Jack says, Can you please feature Glenn Dix from the UK? Totally my fave true crime podcasters bar none. Yeah, wow. Thanks, Jack. That's you, baby. 
Hazel Dix met Glenn Dix in prison. She was visiting her son, and he had become friends with Glenn, who was serving a life sentence for raping and killing a woman back in 1980. Dix convinced Hazel that he was innocent, and when he was released from prison, they got married. But five years later, Dix killed Hazel and dismembered her. Yikes. Yeah, this is something. There is a couple things I wanted to look into here. Uh-huh. He was paroled from prison, or he got out of prison, even though he was serving a life sentence for the rape and killing of a woman. He was somehow released. Uh, yeah. So I don't know how that worked. That's one good question. And then he's married to Hazel. Five years into the marriage, she kills her and dismembered her. And the picture of this was that her kids came over to visit. Oh, Jesus. The picture of this is that her kids came home to see her. And there's Glenn Dix standing naked over her Jesus. body, covered in blood. And she's just been hacked to pieces because he cut off her arms and legs and head and cut out her heart and liver and kidneys. For the love of fuck. How do you deal with that? So How do you deal with that? How do you go on after that? I just don't know. I don't know. That's so horrendous. So I assume he went back to prison right away. Actually, he died in prison. Okay. Well, you know, those UK sentences are generally shorter because we love to put people in prison here in the U.S. Right. We have no problem locking people up. And, you know, that reminds me, next week we're going to be doing a show on these boys, Derek and Alex King, who were prosecuted for the murder of their father. And they were two of the youngest people in the state of Florida ever to be prosecuted for murder. And I really am looking forward to talking about our criminal justice system and minors versus adults, charges, all that stuff is, I think I've mentioned before how fascinated I am with that. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope everyone will join us next week for that one. It'll be an interesting topic. Absolutely. We're going to have a big talk about that. Okay, Dickie, there's one more case suggestion by Lynn. Right. I guess she has more than one because it starts out. She has two cases, so I just truncated them a little and did the one. And Lynn wrote, The first involves a disgruntled husband and father who wants to get back at his wife for divorcing him. After the divorce, while visiting his two little girls, Liberty and Faith, he calls their mom on the phone and shoots them both to death while his ex-wife is listening. I remember this well. I saw her on Oprah years and years ago, and it just never left my mind. This is so haunting and terrifying and dreadful. But needless to say, Texas put him on the death penalty express lane, and he has been executed. The murderer's name is John Battaglia. The crime happened in 2000 here in Dallas, Texas, and there's a Wikipedia on it, so we can look at that and get the basics. Right, and that is the basics. A contentious divorce. He was abusive, and she had taken out restraining orders and gotten divorced and blah, 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 but he still did this. Well, you know, the thing about a restraining order, it really doesn't protect you. No. You're dealing with these people who don't care about the law. So this poor woman, there's not much she could do, but now she has to live with that. I have no idea how she can. Me either. So Lynn had a second case, but we're not bringing that up? No, I'm saving that. Oh, so Lynn's going to be a, a two-episode lady? She could be. I'm going to look into her other suggestion and see. Okay. But we'll go from there. All right. Well, we really do love to get the feedback and suggestions. So if you have a minute, I don't want to beg, but we'd appreciate it. Oh, she's begging again. 
I just think it adds a lot of color to our show to have other voices, right? We want to hear your voices. You need to be heard, right? That's right. Am I right? Okay. Power to the people. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let's wrap things up. This has been a fairly long case. And thank you, Dickie, for discussing it with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And for sharing an awesome beer. I really enjoy that beer. You like that beer? Awesome. And I have a lot of lace on my glass. I know. Yeah. All right. All right. We'll see you next time at the quiet end. Saving seats for you. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.